How important is a piece of ham? The title of this morning's message is Why We Fight. You might have seen that title and wondered who's fighting. Well, no one that I'm aware of. And yet in one manner or another, maybe everyone. If someone isn't fighting now, they probably have been or they likely will be. Conflict is frequent in a fallen world full of fallen people. And quarreling and disputing are not just realities for non-believers. Otherwise, James would not have bothered to bring the issue up in his letter to Christians. Humans fight. Christians fight. J. Dwight Pentecost tells of a church split that was so serious, each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess the others from the church completely disregarding the biblical injunction not to go to court with fellow believers. The civil courts threw it out, but eventually it came to a church court where it belonged, and the higher judiciary of the church made its decision and awarded the church property to one of the two factions. The losers withdrew and formed another church in the area. In the course of the proceedings, the church courts found that the conflict had begun at a church dinner when an elder received a smaller piece of ham than a child seated next to him. Seriously. A piece of ham. Why do we fight? The word of God in James gives us an answer. Father, as we humble ourselves now and take our place under your word, we pray that you would most graciously reveal yourself to us and press your truth upon our hearts and our minds. Help us to see you in these words. Help us to see ourselves. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Having learned from Jesus, James asks a question to get us thinking. He could have just told us, I suppose. He could have just laid it out there. But if we are the sort of folks who are looking for a fight, we won't take too kindly to being told anything. So James, at least and first, makes us responsible to think about the issue that quarrels and fights are happening is given, that they should not be named among the brethren is implied. But what is their cause? What is at the root of these battles these disputes, what causes much of the strife and the contention in your life? James answers his question with a question, inviting us to weigh in, offering something for us to think through. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? See, James quickly goes where you and I might not want to go when it comes to assessing the conflict in our lives. Wouldn't we prefer to believe the reasons for the skirmishes we find ourselves in are external, that they're beyond our control, that they are coming from outside of us? Often when we're trying to help people experiencing an unhealthy pattern of fighting, one finds a tendency toward blaming others. The reason we don't get along is because he's, you can fill in the blank, lazy, inconsiderate, selfish. The reason we can't get past this is because she is fill in the blank, 
impossible to satisfy, demanding, overbearing. Individuals are quick to point the finger and really do seem to believe that the other person, if the other person involved in the conflict would change, then everything would be just fine. And maybe that's true on some level, but it's not the final or the deeper answer to the problem. We cannot overlook James' diagnosis and his use of the words you and your. So if your ears perked up over this subject today and you're seriously looking for some biblical guidance on the matter, then please take to heart the basis of James' explanation. And in particular, realize that in conflict, it really does take two to tango. And there's really only one person you can control. And that is you. We fight, James says, because of our own passions. And the word translated passions in the ESV is elsewhere translated pleasures or lusts. And it's a word that connotes strong feelings and a desire to be pleased. These passions, these strong feelings that we have, he says they are at war. They wage war. A word used of a military commander leading troops into battle. These strong feelings are inside of us. They are camped out inside of us. We could even say that they are entrenched. They are within us. And they are ready to lead the charge for our personal crusades. And this, according to James, is where the fighting and the quarreling begins inside of us, in our hearts. We want something. We want someone to make us feel a certain way. We want to be right. We want to be respected. We want to be appreciated. We want a raise. We want a promotion. We want peace and quiet. We want children to do what they're told. We want a better spouse. We want someone to put the cat back on the toothpaste. Someone to put their dirty clothes in the hamper. We want the right of way at the intersection. We want the same parking spot that someone else has their eye on. We want our political candidates to win. We want something. Now up front, those wants may not be unwarranted or unbiblical. They may not be wrong. The desires we have may not be sinful at all. In fact, they, they may be noble. Who doesn't want a satisfying marriage? Who doesn't want a job that's fun or friends that can be trusted or, or obedient and God-honoring children? There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff unless or until we begin to desire these good things inordinately. Our wants become sinful when we want them too much. And when our wants take on too much importance, then we should view them in biblical terms. We should consider calling them what the Bible calls them. We should consider that we have made our desires into idols. What is an idol? Well, from our work over the years with biblical peacemaking, we know author Ken Sandy's definition of an idol. An idol is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters us or rules us. An idol is anything other than God that we trust to make us happy or secure. And a couple of ways for us to determine if our legitimate wants have crossed that line into becoming idols is, one, if we're willing to sin to get what we want, and two, if we're willing to sin in response to not getting 
what we want? Will I violate God's law to get what I want? Will I break God's command if I don't get it? This is where James goes next in verse 2. You desire, a word that means to set your heart upon, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, whether James here is speaking literally or figuratively, we can't say with certainty, I don't think. Both would apply. Early in the history of humanity, Cain and Abel, jealousy and selfish ambition led to murder, and that pattern has been repeating ever since. We can quickly point to tragic and all too common domestic abuse cases today, likely this week even, where wicked people have killed those that they cannot have. So James could easily be speaking literally, though he is more likely speaking figuratively, describing selfish behavior the way that Jesus did. This past winter, and I'm happy to say past, and I hope it stays in the past, in our study of the book of James, we noted how much of James' teaching parallels and references Jesus' teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, Jesus said, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is intimating that we murder, but we murder at times with our words. That is the most common murdering anyone does. It's with words. We're at odds with someone. We, we become angry with them because they're saying no to our wants or because they have what we want or because they represent a barrier to us getting what we want and we unleash on them verbally or sadly it's just too easy today. We unleash on them via text or email or messenger or with some other public post. Listen, please, brothers and sisters. The Bible gives us wonderful guidance on how to resolve conflict, especially among believers. And it is so very important that we are eager, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, to do whatever it takes to preserve peace and unity in the fellowship. This counsel from Scripture that teaches us how to resolve conflict when someone sins against us, when we sin against somebody, involves face-to-face, person-to-person, human-to-human interaction. And yet, this biblical, in-person way of sorting out troubles is a casualty of our online world. So I implore you this morning, as those interested in obedience to God's word, do not argue with someone via text. Do not try to hold someone accountable with an email. Do not make your case on messenger or fire off a condemning tweet. Do not air your disputes in any social media platform, for that matter. These modern mediums are presumptuous, and they are often used inconsiderately. They invade without invitation. It's one thing when they are used benignly 
or for sharing information, asking someone, do you want to hang out on Friday, or, or letting someone know, hey, I'm running a little bit late. But it's another thing altogether when these are weaponized. Somebody can drop a bomb on you at any time. And sometimes that's how we justify our ungodly use of this technology. We say something like, I just had to get that off my chest. Friend, you realize that kind of thinking makes it all about us. It does not even remotely resemble God's standard or his desire for our communication, which is speech that is to be seasoned with grace and good for the building up of the hearer. And beyond this, these modern mediums are too easily accessible when our passions are aroused. And that's true in a sexual way as well now, isn't it? With all the picture-taking and the swapping, it seems flirtatious and in the end can be a cause of great embarrassment or worse, humiliation or worse, extortion. Further research has shown that when we are communicating behind a screen, the lack of human interaction, the relative anonymity of our opponent or our adversary emboldens us to be more aggressive and less compassionate to say, or in this case, to write what would not be said or shared if we were in the presence of a flesh and blood person. In other words, taking the end around of biblical conflict resolution and avoiding the uncomfortable face-to-face -face interaction with someone that you are at odds with may seem, in fact, to be more efficient, but it is rarely, if ever, effective. Don't do it. Refuse to do it. If someone tries to make you do it, goads you into it, pick up the phone and ask if you can get together with that person and talk it through. Or simply write back, this is too important to try to work out over distance. Can we meet? Listen, friends, it is easy to murder someone with our words. Typed, text, or spoken. Just think about how you respond, what you say, what you do when someone says no, or not yet, or you can't. You covet, James says in chapter 4, verse 2, that is, you are moved with envy, you are moved with jealousy. There is a burning desire you have for something, and you cannot obtain. That is, what you want is kept from you. It is not immediately given to you, so you fight and quarrel. And this is why we fight. If you ever happen to accompany me to a biblical counseling conference in Indiana, and I hope someday in the near future some of you will, you are almost guaranteed to hear this pithy little saying. We do what we do because we want what we want. And that's what this boils down to. This is the reality of much of our fighting and quarreling. It hinges on our passions. It hinges on our strong feelings. We want something, and someone won't give it to us. Someone stands in the way of our getting it. So let's take a few minutes now to look at how this plays out practically, how conflict develops in our hearts and then manifests in behavior. This particular sequence that I'm going to share with you is from Paul Tripp's work, an instrument's in the Redeemer's hand. It's re represented in other and similar ways in Ken Sandy's book on biblical peacemaking and Brad Bigney's book called Gospel Treason. Here's the progression. We'll, we'll flesh it out in just a second. And if you happen to be with me during our James study, then this is a repeat for you. This is a repeat. 
for those who recently studied the book of James with me. The progression is this. It begins with desires. I want. And it moves to demand. I will. And it becomes a need. I must. And then an expectation. You should. And then a disappointment. You didn't. And then punishment. Now, I will or I won't. As James points out, the conflict begins in our hearts with the strong feelings inside of us. I have a desire. I want. And that desire percolates in my heart and in my mind. And I develop a plan or at least a general sense of how I can get what I want. And I purpose to do something or not do something that's going to lead me closer to getting what I fancy. So I, I decide I will. I decide on a course of action. And as I move deeper into this progression, I'm driven by my strong desire. I convince myself that I really need what I want. It's so easy to relabel our wants into needs. And since now it's a need, I must do something to meet that need. And since it has become a need now, I develop expectations. Not just for me, but for those all around me. Those who may have some say in whether or not I get this thing that I want or whether or not I am spared from this thing that I don't want, I expect that others or an other should do something to help me along, something for me. Now, an interesting phenomenon can happen here. Maybe you've experienced it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most married folks have experienced this. And that is that while I have a clear idea of what another should do to meet my need... That other has absolutely no access to what's going on in my mind or my heart. So I have to admit that I haven't always communicated perfectly. And therefore, surprise, surprise, the other doesn't always act the way I believe that she or he should. And that leads, inevitably, to disappointment. Maybe some finger pointing. Maybe even some finger wagging. You didn't. And finally, when it's obvious that another is not going to help me get my way or stands in between me and the thing I desire, I act out and I punish. There's a price to pay. If this is how it's going to be, then I will do, say, something mean, hurtful, something that you don't like, or I won't do or say something that you need or something that you want. So let's use this to think through your last fight. Think through your last conflict, may have happened at home, may have happened at work. Hopefully you have to, you have to think way back to the last time you had a conflict with someone, but I'm guessing that most of us will be able to come up with something fairly quickly. Think back to how and when it started. Your desire. I want. What was it that you wanted? And then your demand. I will. What were you planning to do to get it or, or, or to avoid it? Your need. I must. Why or when did it take on such great importance for you? When did it become so crucial? Your expectation. What were you looking for another person to do for you? 
your disappointment? How did that other person perform? Did she or he even know what you were hoping for? Did, did she or he even know what you were thinking or feeling? And then finally, your punishment. How did you respond when you didn't get what you wanted? What did you say? What did you do? And did it make things better or worse? The bottom line is we do what we do because we want what we want. The source of fighting and quarrels is not someone else. It's the strong desires we have inside of us. And since the implication of this text, just in case you miss it, is that our fighting and quarreling are not good things, we should be wondering, how do we fight less? Or not at all. How do we prevent a slice of ham from causing a church split? Well, friends, that'll be the subject of another message.